Please turn with me in your Bibles again to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> well, so far in 2 Corinthians, especially in chapter 3 and now chapter 4, we've seen Paul writing about some of the great truths of the new covenant in Christ. And when you step back a moment and see how he has opened up the door to a deeper understanding of what the gospel is and how it applies to believers in day-to-day -day life, you can also see better how this is so very personal to him. There is nothing more important to Paul than knowing God and helping people helping them really see who God is and what God has done for them and really see who they were without him and who they are now that they belong to him. And that's why he shares so many personal experiences with this church that he planted over a period of about a year and a half, several years before. His own experiences can help them get to know God better. It has greatly pained him to have seen many of these people digress into all sorts of petty arguments and quarrels and divisions. And he knows they're missing the point of knowing God through Christ on so many levels. So he has written them about each and every problem and answered their many questions. And this follow-up letter deals with some of their previous issues, but it also addresses some new ones that have arisen because some people have tried to undermine what he has been doing and teaching. And yet, the way he writes the tone, the personal experiences he shares, and the hope in Christ that he keeps referring to and encouraging them in, hits every chord in our own hearts that also seem to need retuning. He has no doubts about the sufficiency of the one who paid for our own sin. He also knows that each and every one of us must humble ourselves before this Christ who is the Lord and love and serve the Lord as our Lord. Paul knows that the Old Testament scriptures pointed to Christ and that Christ fulfilled every demand of the law and so became the acceptable atoning sacrifice that brought forgiveness to those who believe and trust in him and his work. He also knows that this means the believer can really know Christ. And by beholding him in his glory, every believer is being transformed by his spirit to reflect his image to the world that we live in. And he writes of the treasure of Christ and his gospel as an abiding light in us. And then, in what looks like to me and most people as a 
state of wonder and praise, in that state, he tells us why God put such a treasure in human bodies that are so much like jars of clay. The simple reason is in chapter 4, verse 7, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Perhaps even suddenly for some of us, we realize that our purpose here in this life is so much more meaningful than we ever thought possible as we hear this. It's weightier. It bears eternal importance. Every Christian who got this, who understood this, and agreed with it would make the reflection of Christ's glory in Paul's face even brighter. Yeah, you heard that right. Because Paul was the one who was privileged to bring this gospel message to them. It's very similar to a parent who finally sees a child that they're really concerned about get it. And you see their heart changed before your very eyes. Well, that's what happens spiritually, too. And in today's passage, Paul encourages the Corinthians to proclaim the gospel. We'll be looking at verses 13, 14, and 15. It's a really long passage. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So the Apostle Paul here gives two important reasons for being able to engage in and stick with the ministry that God had given him, even though it involved much suffering and heartache. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is, huh, if God called Paul to such a dangerous mission in so many ways, and he was sufficient to him, and Paul understood that, and even explains that in passages like this, what does that mean for us? The first reason to be able to engage in and stick with the ministry that God has given him, or put your name in there, the calling that he's given you, was because Paul knew that genuine faith cannot remain silent. 
This is not a personality thing. This is across the board in however he has gifted you, whatever personality type one of his children is. And immediately in our text, he takes us to what Dennis read, Psalm 116, specifically verse 10, which is a psalm of praise about the psalmist's deliverance from death. And in the middle of the psalmist's description of his experience of distress and disillusionment with people, we see his conviction of belief. Also experienced with affliction, Paul obviously identifies with the psalmist and sees in this psalm a written record of an Old Testament saint who exercises faith in the midst of very trying circumstances. Following the Septuagint rendering of that psalm, which was used in Paul's day, <clears throat> the translation of the Old Testament. Paul says here in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 4, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. He found a biblical example and encouragement in a kindred spirit who recognized that faith in the Almighty God cannot keep silent about him. I'm going to read a few verses where Paul expresses his love for the Savior. And most of these are all of these that I'll be reading He's communicating this to the churches that he ministered to. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I have an immediate question. Do I look at the word of the cross as his power, and if I do look, have I experienced his power in changing me? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 15, first two verses, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And that's just a picture of one letter. It's a continuous message because you and I have to admit we need repetition. We need reminding, which tells us that our hearts slip 
so fast away from relying on God's power into our own means. We've looked at Ephesians 3 before, but I'm going to read the whole passage that I've been reading, I think, every week for a couple of weeks now. Ephesians 3, verses 4 through 13. Listen to the flow of this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, if you've ever looked for an example of someone going through suffering who can still praise God and explain what God has called them to do or be in this life, that's it. But th there's passages like this everywhere. Do we go there when we hit rough times? Do we go there now in our day? Are we thankful for being able to gather? Are we giving that glory back to the Lord? Now, there's a second reason for being able to engage in and stick with his God-given ministry. And that was the firm conviction of his own bodily resurrection when Christ returned which continues in this same sentence of verse 14. Verses 13 and 14 go together. There's only one or two English translations that put a period between them. Most of them get this right. This goes together. We read there, knowing, after what he just said, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, don't cut off the last part. Look at this. And bring us with you into his presence. In other words, his faith 
took him directly to his sure and certain hope. I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of times I've got detours I take in between the two of those. And I think most of life is trying to get that straight. Do you see how this means that the Corinthian believers Paul had led to Christ would be together with Paul in the presence of Christ? And we need to let that sink in. This is no wild dream that's not based on anything. This is the truth. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 19 and 20, that also looks forward to this hope. And speaking to another church, the church in Thessalonica, Paul writes this in the context of wanting to see them. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So part of the joy every believer will experience in the presence of Christ when he returns and our bodies are resurrected and made into new eternal bodies united with our souls is that we'll be together again with those believers who meant so much to us in this life. I don't think I need to read that again. Let that soak in. There are many people in my life that I feel like I wish I could go back and say something to them. And some were major players that God used in me, in my life. So we can realize that and be sad about that now, but it shouldn't last that long because of what this teaches us. We will see these people again. But make the most of the ones that you know now that are still around. This is not a dream. It's our sure hope in Christ. And I'm amazed at how much I've never focused on this part of our sure and certain hope. Instead of recognizing and cherishing this truth, I've relegated it to a footnote, usually. The resurrection of our bodies when Christ returns is a major part of all the joy of being in Christ's presence. Just think of all the people that God has used in your life. And if you've ever tried to do this and write it all down, if you're getting my age or more, a lot of those names won't come back, but the faces will. But I think we are going to be so surprised at how many people offered some kind of encouragement, especially all the grandparents that have been praying for their grandkids and great-grandkids, it seems like, forever. And they ended up knowing the Lord and walking with Him. 
We're going to see so many people that we went, you, I remember that. And what does that do to your heart? Well, it, do, it does exactly what Paul says here. Just think of yourself and all of them being completely without sin and able to glory in, worship, and enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ in person forever. The train will never leave the station in heaven. They will always be there with us. And just think of the wonder as each of us discovers the magnitude of God's grace and plan worked out in myriads of details that we never even dreamed of being possible. You can take any part of your Christian walk that you're just going like this and shaking your head. And what we know now will be this big compared to when we see how God made it all unfold. How many weird circumstances did God ordain to bring that person into your life at that time in history, at that place on the globe, in that hour of need? It is absolutely amazing. And the more you ponder on that, the bigger your God becomes. Because you can never think of him as too big. And then in verse 15, Paul writes, for it is all for your sake. And remember, he's writing the Corinthians. We know a lot about these, these people. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's the purpose. Now, maybe this verse will hit deeper into our hearts and soothe much of the pain of any suffering that we may be experiencing. Why? Because as we realize how God works this way, we realize that our little gripes and bitterness and all the stuff that we draw out so much and spend so much time worrying over and fretting about, is minuscule compared to how God uses it all to bring all these other people to himself and encourage them. Anything that gets me out of me is great. So thanksgiving to the glory of God will increase as grace extends to more and more people. But why, why, what is it that all, that is all for their sake? Well, as the spiritual father of most of these people, I don't, we need to remember that. He founded this church. There weren't any Christians really there when he went. Paul is deeply interested in and committed to them which is why it hurts so much when they digress away from the truth of the gospel. And for this reason, he has expended himself and continues to expend himself for them. He looks at them as people God sent him to, people who needed to hear the gospel. So they are people 
God had chosen to be his own children. Christ died for them. Therefore, what is Paul saying? Anything Paul has experienced was more than worth it. Anything. The very next sentence in verse 16, which we will get to in two weeks, Lord willing. Look what he says again. So we do not lose heart. He says this twice in this part of 2 Corinthians. And you know what we're going to discover? We're going to see that Paul says this the first time back in chapter 4, and the results of that we see in this life of us being able to reflect God's glory in this life to others. This time, what we're going to see in the next paragraph is that this, the results of not losing heart lead to and have an effect upon and result in the life to come, which is what he's talking about right here. If you tend to lose heart easily, you need to camp in these two chapters and go for some hikes, long ones, in the book of Psalms. Many kindred spirits wrote those. Let's pray as we go into the Lord's Supper. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for this small paragraph in the middle of this book that deals with this one thing, the incredible reasons for why you let us suffer, along with a reason why we cannot remain silent. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in the new hearts that you've given us through the power of your spirit, through the word of God, to be able to go back here in our minds. As soon as we see our hearts wandering off the road you have us on, that we could take those thoughts captive in your strength and your power, that we could be glad for what you have called us to be and do, that we could have grateful hearts for how you're working in other people, and that that would bring us so much joy that it would help us walk as well. We thank you now for being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper that he instituted on the night that he was betrayed, and we forget that and that we pray that we could understand deeper uh, Jesus as your gift to us and what he accomplished. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.